The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today, entertainment and the arts. And if ever there was a year that we needed entertainment, it was 2020. 2020, here we having fun. How many years will we try to cram into one? But when the pandemic took off, the arts were among the first to be hit and hit hardest. We were literally at the theatre taking a world premiere. We were due to open three days later when everything got shut down. Well, right now, entertainment venues say they are 30 to 60 days away from shutting down permanently. Broadway will go dark at least until the beginning of next year. Clubs and music venues remain closed. Across Australia and the world, theatres and cinemas shuttered, concerts and festivals were cancelled. The New South Wales government announcing it's cancelling this year's Vivid Light Festival. The annual South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas has been cancelled. The Royal Easter Show cancelled. Coachella and Stagecoach Music Festivals are now officially cancelled. Up to 75% of workers in the creative and performing arts were left jobless because of COVID-19. Scott Morrison is being accused of reneging on a promise to save the arts, which have been savaged by COVID-19. The government has been very, very slow in responding to what has been an absolute crisis. Playing shows and, and going out there and selling merchandise is where bands like us make a living. And so we're not able to do that right now. 90% of us will be out of business in the next three to six months. The government should have used today to extend JobKeeper to arts and entertainment workers. And make no mistake, the arts is essential. But as the lights slowly, slowly start to flicker back on for shows and gigs, and as we make our first tentative steps back to socially distant stands, history suggests that the world of entertainment will likely be changed. After the Great Depression, for example, audiences just flocked to affordable but escapist fare. And rock and roll, well, that came out of the feel-good moments following the Second World War, not just because of the mood, but also the economics, with post-war fuel prices, meaning that you couldn't really travel with big ensembles because it was too expensive. So we saw the rise of smaller, more mobile groups. So beyond COVID, what is it that audiences will want as entertainment? And how exactly will those who produce it go about doing so. I'm going to need a lot of help with this because it's a vast field and we're going to need the eyes of historians and analysts, but also practitioners in different areas to try to get anything like a handle on this. So I'm delighted to say we are going to break a rule whereby it's normally two guests and me having a chat. We're going to have three today because we simply need the coverage that that offers. Alan Cross is a music journalist, but also a historian and broadcaster, and he's been good enough to join us all the way from Canada. Oh, thanks for having me. Deborah Oswald has done all kinds of work that you would have seen plenty of times, everything from Bananas in Pyjamas through to Offspring, where she was the uh, head writer and, of course, the creator of that fantastic 
and highly popular drama. Hello, Willie. And also, Ben Folds joins us. You might think he's an American musician, but of course, for now, he's Australian because he's stuck in Sydney having been on tour with his orchestra show when the pandemic hit. And of course, the variety of his stuff from rock and roll all the way through to orchestral and piano concerto stuff means that he's very well versed on all things musical and he joins us as well. Ben, let me start with you. Explain to us exactly how it is you came to be here. Uh, I was on tour with the orchestras and um, yeah, I mean, it all shut down like we know. There's a lot of uncertainty, you know, where to go for the next day, then the next day after that, and the next day after that. And uh, it just it just became obvious that uh, that I was here. I wanted to get busy and wanted to start working, which meant working from, you know, a new apartment or a furnished rental that we got really quickly and my laptop and a plastic keyboard. One thing led to another, basically. I mean, it's the way that I think I play anything in a musical career. It's sort of improvisation and reacting to what is in the moment. Yeah, but this is a hell of a thing to improvise, isn't mm. it? I, mean, I imagine you hadn't seen anything quite like this before in your career where you it's sort of forcibly shut down midstream, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, I was very, very concerned about the pandemic pretty early on. I'm sort of one of those people who uh, would follow this sort of thing. And I'd already canceled everything mostly through 2020 already in, uh, in March. And so I was just waiting on the uh, orchestras to to do the same here, and then it happened while I was in an airport, of course. <laughs> so those things happen. But yeah, it is it is very different, and it's caused me to sort of uh, swallow a lot of my uh, analog pride and go digital. In what way do you mean? Do you mean doing stuff online, or do you mean digital with the music that you're actually doing? Almost everything, you know. Really, my access to an audience is now digital. It's not in person. My piano is is essentially a digital, you know, it's a computer. My way of recording is digital. Um, I've always been much more analog and this stuff takes up rooms and rooms of space and doesn't work in this particular era. So that has changed my approach probably for some time. Deborah, your work is of course very different. You're involved in producing film, television, that kind of thing, and writing a lot of stuff. Were you seriously disrupted? Well, no, because in a way, the pandemic work mode, which is being at home in your tracky jacks and UGG boots, is 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 normal for me. I'm I'm match fit for a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I was scheduled to do a one woman show, like performing it at the Griffin in late March. So this is theatre. So obviously, you need a live audience for that. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. So the Griffin is a, is a small theatre in Sydney. Two weeks out, we had to cancel. So that was fairly dramatic. But actually for writers, in a way, the development process hasn't changed. It's more about imagining how soon we'll, we'll get stuff in production and how the pandemic will change the landscape for production. So nonetheless, you have in common with Ben that a live show is cancelled. Yes, yes. Who knows if that becomes a tour or not in your case, but at the very least a live show. So were you staring into the abyss a little bit? I wasn't because I think I was, as a natural hypochondriac and pessimist, I saw it coming long before the theatre <laughs> accepted the reality. So, I mean, maybe it's partly about being a writer in Australia. I, I, I keep my expectations low. <laughs> right, okay. But also, I guess, in your case, you're quite established. I mean, you've got a lot of runs on the board. You've got a lot behind you. Yes. I mean, I think I, I feel desperately sorry for, you know, what if, if you were a young playwright or a young actor who got their first big gig, and to have, you know, an entire theatre season, seasons were cancelled around the country. And for artists and writers and crew in something like the theatre, it's so precarious, not, not just financially but also in terms of morale, that I worry that we might have, some people might have taken such a blow to their morale and their finances that we might lose some talented people to whatever their plan B was. 
I mean, people are always on the edge of giving up because it's so hard. Yeah. So after a year like this, especially if you're an on-stage performer, gee, that'd be hard. And musicians too, the same for musicians at the beginning of their careers. I might just road test that with you very briefly, Ben. If you were, pick an age, what would it be? 18, 19, something like this? Uh, And when this happened, do you think Ben Folds exists as we know him now? Um, No, I don't because um, I I was unusual. My my band, uh, it was a three-piece band. We carried a real baby grand piano on tour. God. <laughs> this was something that we moved ourselves. I was always on the verge of this not working. Uh, like what Deborah is saying, like when you're in, in the arts as a startup and even, even later on, it's on the verge of not working as, as a business. And you're always faced with uh, demoralizing you know, failure. And to have something like this put you out of business for 18 months, it will end careers before they began. Mm. All right, so let's get a historical view on this, Alan, this idea that talent will be lost just as a starting point as a result of the pandemic. I know you spent a lot of time looking at the impact of previous pandemics on the arts. So have you seen that kind of thing happen as well, like a talent drain? Well, I have a lot of people that I'm familiar with in the Canadian music industry who are are suffering greatly. If it weren't for their performing rights checks, the money that they get for getting songs on the radio, they would have no income whatsoever. They can't tour. Uh, There is only so much music that you can sync to a TV commercial or a television show or a movie trailer or something like that. They're in desperate straits. People make great music no matter what. And uh, and art and music will be made. The real question is, can someone make a living off of it? I know for myself, I'm personally not as interested in the transition period of going out and playing for spaced audiences, uh, simply because I don't even know how I can make that work to afford crew. And I don't know how the venues can actually afford to do this. And the ticket prices can't be more. And it just ends up being, it's not really, the business wasn't built on a huge profit margin for most anyway. And I I think that I'm going to skip out on that. And I'm lucky because I I can hang on. But I I think that that's good for for a moment. But I hope the transition isn't too long because playing for a quarter-filled audience provides, I mean, that's, a, that's trouble for security. That's trouble for, uh, you know, for, for everyone. It's very difficult. It's inspiring because we get to see shows and I'm all, all for it coming back, but it's going to be tough. Mm. There's a similar conversation going on amongst comedians about this, Ben. So some comedians are quite happy to transition to yeah. digital forms of doing comedy. Others are like, Jerry Seinfeld was very strong on this. My colleague, Pete Hellier, I think has a similar view where it's like, give me the full thing or, or give me nothing. Mm. This is what it has to be. What was Jerry's uh, view on this? Jerry's was, uh, I'm not interested if it's not what it was. I mean, some can afford not to be interested and that's- Yes, exactly. And then that's, and I'll admit that's where I sit, but it's still, when I look at it, I think I've heard all these conversations between various promoters in the US and no one still has any plan for how to do it. It's such a big country and it's difficult for a national tour to fire up and cross the country not knowing what it's going to look like consistently from venue to venue. And, and they're going to get this transition down to a science, and then COVID's going to be mm. gone. Yeah, well, well, at least we hope. I mean, maybe not. Yeah, well, we hope. Or, or this version of COVID anyway. We've looked there at the damage it's done in a very direct way, but I'm interested in the indirect and perhaps long-term consequences of this. So can we perhaps begin with the audience rather than the people who are creating the art and the question of taste? And I know you've written some really interesting things about how taste has changed and, and art forms have responded to pandemics going as far back as ancient Greece. 
Well, what's what's interesting, if we go back 100 years to the 1918-1920 pandemic, almost no music, almost no art came out of that, despite it being a worldwide thing. I found exactly three songs that were written about the pandemic. Everybody simply wanted to forget about it and move on. And there were, were other pandemics or other health crises that we endured and got through and really never saw anything manifest itself in the arts until we get to the age of AIDS. That was a completely different thing. And there, you know, there were plays, there were songs, there were books, there were movies, all kinds of things based on that. It's going to be interesting to see exactly what comes out of this, uh, especially since we've got a lot of people locked away with nothing to do, but maybe spend some time with their thoughts and, and create. So will we get pandemic pop? <laughs> Can we call that a new genre going forward? Will we get uh, some new novels? Will we get some new movies? It's going to be a while before I think we, we see any sort of entertainment based on this. People want to get to, they want to experience the arts in person with a bunch of other like-minded people. That's what makes live performance of every kind so interesting because you're there with everybody else enjoying the same thing at exactly the same time. You can't download that. You can't Zoom that. But there is going to be a period of PTSD where people are thinking, eh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang back a little bit because I don't really, I've been conditioned to stay away from sweaty strangers and their bodily fluids. So it's going to take a little while, and and I'm going to be very interested to see the next time I go to a show whether there's going to be a mosh pit. <laughs> <laughs> it may depend on the age group involved, actually, because we're kind of seeing that with the way that people observe social distancing or don't right around the world. But leaving aside the will COVID turn up or not part of taste, what do you think the mood of it will be? Will we go lighter, uh, more trivial in the things that we want to consume? Will we go a bit darker, more introspective? Is there a way to predict or even have an educated guess at these things? I think we can go in one of two ways. First of all, the, the, the pent-up music that's being created right now in this time of fear and uncertainty could result in a lot of music like that because, you know, music is always downstream from society. Or we could be so happy that things are back to normal that we could see a, a bursting forth of joyful music that celebrate life and all the things that we, we used to do and that they're back. It could go either way. Let me ask the practitioners then. Ben, Deborah, what are you, what are you feeling within you? Are you feeling realism or are you feeling escapism? I'll start with you, Deb. Well, looking at what people are watching on Netflix, they're really going for escapism. I mean, that there's no other way to explain the popularity of Emily in Paris. Which is none of you are making noise, so you clearly haven't seen this woeful. No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. That, that's perfect escapism. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a studied silence, Deborah. That was a very deliberate silence. I think people are just eating it up. I think we might be subjected to some truly woeful dramas and stage plays about, about the pandemic, but I don't think audiences want that. I mean, we might see down the track a kind of prestige broad canvas TV miniseries a bit like a sort of long-form version of Steve Soderbergh's movie Contagion. I can imagine that, but that's years down the I mean, as Alan said, I think that, that's a long way down the track. It's interesting at the moment television networks are asking for writers and producers to include no reference to the pandemic and what they're making. So we're not having dramas where people are, you know, wearing masks or using hand sanitizers. Right now, we're kind of overdosing on pandemic-related entertainment. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. 
Contagion was one of the most streamed movies on Netflix for the longest time. There is a Russian series on right now called To the Lake, which is all about a pandemic. Uh, there was uh, another series called Utopia, which is all about a, a pandemic. I'm reading a book right now from a, a wonderful writer called Salima Nawaz which is called Songs for the End of the World. She spent the last five years writing it, and it turns out to be a, a, a novel about a novel coronavirus that's affecting the world. So we're, we're binging on this stuff right now, and I think we're going to get pretty tired of it. I think like in the cases of some of these, uh, you know, like Contagion and entertainment like that, I think we're watching that a lot simply because they don't know what's next. And so it almost serves as a creative view of what might happen when when we're uncertain. It's almost, we're almost like watching those things like documentaries. The way I look at it as a musician is that, you know, there are musician songwriters and we're singing and playing and writing what we feel. And then there's an audience and they not necessarily have the same experiences. The business is always supposed to connect us. You know, like say I write songs that are very niche and I have a small uh, crowd that uh, listens to that that aren't connected to the rest of the world. If the distribution technology and the, the business is there to connect us, then we're going to all maybe we'll all sit and talk about 2020 or maybe we'll forget the pandemic or whatever. But it's kind of like those three arms together decide ultimately where the style goes, because everyone may be in their bedrooms writing song after song about the pandemic, but can it hit the mark and will people want to hear it? And I agree with uh, with Alan. I mean, I, I think people are going to be sick of it. And musicians, I feel like we've been pretty much, I think most most songwriters have been turned off of writing anything that can be aged by a news cycle over the last decade simply because you write a song and if if it's going to be old news because the news cycle moved faster than the distribution can can keep up with right now the news cycle is like what 15 minutes so if you write a song like you know 15 minutes later you could offend someone <laughs> they could be you know someone might have died of covid that, or, or there could be anything that could happen in the world that makes you feel like you shouldn't even write you just made me realize why there's no protest music these days Exactly. I think that's why. That's what shuts me down. I don't feel like it's going to be relevant. I feel like a, like some old guy who went to sleep at the Thanksgiving dinner or something and woke up and, and started preaching about something from last year. It, it, you can't keep up with it and it shuts you down pretty quickly. So, Ali, you wrote something really fascinating about the, I suppose, what we might call a pandemic in ancient Greece, maybe the first century BC, and how Greek tragedy, almost as a new theatrical or literary form, emerged out of that. I hope I haven't mischaracterized your description there. Can you foresee something similar happening, a kind of new art form or a new style in entertainment that perhaps isn't on our radar at the moment? I certainly hope so, because I want us to come out of this grateful for having survived. And at this point, technology is really, uh, is really having a say. I mean, I don't like writing three-second songs, but you know what? Little things that I do on Instagram now that are like 10 seconds long of a little piece of music, those things are reaching people. But also, I think back to, you mentioned war. The aftermath of those wars I associate anyway at a kind of you know, casual observer's distance was one of celebratory culture. I mean, you have the roaring 20s and then you have, you know, that post-war explosion of rock and roll and all kinds of scandalous art forms that, you know, were, were very feel-good in the way that they offered themselves and it was kind of a breaking of shackles. So if that analogy holds, that's really what we should be expecting, isn't it? It's possible. All we have to look is our friend Dogface208 on his longboard drinking cranberry juice to uh, Fleetwood Mac's dreams. 
which led in several generations of people to discover Fleetwood Mac for the first time, pushing the Rumors album into the top 10 of the Billboard album charts for the first time in 42 years. So technology is always changing the way we consume music and the way we access music. And maybe because we're locked inside, away from everybody else, forced to be solitary and isolated, we're looking for anything, anything to make us feel good and to pass the time. So maybe TikTok is one of those things that is in the right place at the right time with the right kind of content. I suppose what I'm not sure about is after we've finished entertaining and and distracting ourselves, will we then be hungry for a full meal again? All that snacking might make us feel, you know, it, it's salty and you <laughs> you need to drink a lot, but maybe you, you hunger for a, for a full meal. I hope so because I don't know that in terms of dramatic storytelling and I suspect in terms of music that you can quite reach the depths and the kind of eloquence about existence that you can unless you give yourself a bit of space. Actually, you raise a really interesting phenomenon there. And Alan, I wouldn't mind your perspectives on this. And and that is the idea of micro entertainment, I suppose, which is what we have now that Ben's gestured towards there that we didn't previously. And, uh, you know, TikTok is probably the platform du jour for this sort of thing. I think of someone like Sarah Cooper, the American comedian who was taken to using audio of Donald Trump press conferences, particularly during COVID, though not exclusively, and then making them comic by the way she performs them. And that sort of visual audio mismatches become well, certainly international, if not global as a phenomenon. It's been quite extraordinary. So that relationship between technology and entertainment means that these forms of expression exist in a way that they hadn't previously. Do you think that radically changes the kind of art that we'll see on the other side? I think people are making do with what they can get at the moment. I suppose what I'm saying is once we are, we can go back out to see live music and theatres and more production can actually be happening, people will say, thank you, we get this back again now. Deb, I want to talk to you very specifically about the local factors of this, because we're talking about entertainment really in a very global way, I suppose. Australia's a unique environment in this context, isn't it? Do you foresee a pandemic-related crisis of Australian content? Uh, Yeah, good question. Look, a lot of the things that are affecting that predate COVID, obviously, the sort of, you know, massive rise of the streaming platforms and and those platforms are like a gaping maw that needs content, so much content, and that's a real opportunity for Australia to jump in and say, we'll provide you some of that content. But because our government isn't requiring the streamers to make Australian product, as they are in Europe, for example, I mean, there's been a flourishing of drama in Spain, Germany, Italy, France, because Netflix and co are required to make content in those countries. We don't have that here. What we have here is our government's gone the other direction, which is because production was shut down for a while because of the pandemic, they gave the broadcast networks a reprieve from having to show Australian content for a period of months. They reduced the quotas. So we've gone slightly backwards, if anything. And I just think it's such a shame because actually this could be an incredible opportunity for Australian TV screen drama. You've got these streaming platforms that need content. We are in a position to produce content here probably more safely than in a lot of other countries. If we had the finance and the government and the government policy settings that would support us, we could jump in and be making our own stories I know you've um, thought a lot about the impact of technology, and particularly streaming on entertainment, Alan. 
I wonder what that phenomenon means for the question of local content, right? If we think about those sort of micro platforms we're talking about before that begin on social media, for example, might that be a way for, in our case, Australian content to find its way to viewers uh, or listeners because it's coming via platforms that can't be blocked, you know, in the way that television can or something like that. You can't stop local content being created. It, it could be, or we could end up with a Spotify situation where the barrier to distribution of product is so easy for everyone that everyone does it. Like if you look at Spotify right now, there's 65 million songs on the on the platform and 20% of those songs have never been streamed once. There's actually a site called Forgotify. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me I'm not on that. <laughs> <laughs> when you sign in with your Spotify account, it will give you a steady stream of songs from Spotify that have never been played once. So what's 20% of 65 million? That's a lot of material. Sure, but it does mean that there is more material, though, that is being accessed still, like even if the percentages don't look good. It, it is true, but in many ways, television and motion pictures are taking the same attitude as the music industry, where they're just producing a whole bunch of stuff, throwing it all against the wall and hoping that one or two things stick and give them a hit. Right now, I think there are between, Deborah can probably give me a better number, but there's between 400 and 500 scripted dramas that are in production at any one time in North America. That's a lot of television. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there. I'm, I'm thinking about what goes the other way though. So take an example of a comedy troupe in Australia called Auntie Donna. So they begin really by posting sketches to Facebook. That's their thing. And then they grow from that into what has now become a Netflix deal, which could then find a, a global audience. Now, I suspect they don't get their chance via traditional mechanisms. I could be wrong about that, but I kind of suspect they don't. And if they do, it's certainly not global in that way. Well, I'll give you an example. G Jim Jeffries. I had never heard of Jim Jeffries before Netflix. Right. So, so does that allay some of the concerns we might have about local content disappearing, that it might just find alternative pathways to an even bigger audience? Or is that, do you think that's kind of a false hope? I think stand-up comedy, Australian stand-up comedy has done very well out of Netflix and Stan. And those micro-platforms that you're talking about are a great way for people to get noticed. Nothing is going to make up for the difference between an American drama product that has 4 or $5 million per hour spent on it and what we can manage here. Mm. Well, that raises for me the question of barriers to entry, I, I suppose. It seems to me that two things might be going on there, that the barriers to entry are simultaneously going up particularly if you have to figure out a COVID safe way to produce things. So I think I remember reading that Cardi B's recent song, she had to spend something like $100,000 just doing COVID tests and the like to be able to film the film clip. So that's going to be out of reach for people who aren't at that sort of level in the industry. But then at the same time, Ben, to come back to the technology point you make, distribution costs are much lower. People can kind of put things out much more easily. Do you see a democratizing or a concentration of art? There used to be, you know, and this is way beyond, you know, pandemics, but there used to be more centralized filters. You know, you knew if you bought a Blue Note record, you had a pretty good chance of getting a great record. You might be buying something that is going to be legendary and, and you paid for that filter. And so we've lost that in the last 20 years. But at the same time, we've gained more access to your average person. It's just that now the freeway has so many lanes to it that you don't know, which kind of brings me back to the difficulty of saying where art is going to go, where art wants to go, where the audience wants to go, what musicians or writers feel like. You might write an amazing play and come out in 18 months and find that there's no, there are no venues left to do live theater. So maybe you have to perform it at the mall. 
I, I don't know. Like it's it, it's so circumstantial that it's it is really difficult to say what it is that people want in art, where it's going. But I I do think that probably technology will have ended up wagging this whole situation more than the pandemic actually itself will. I know for myself, what the pandemic has done is it's made me more reliant on digital. And it's made my imagination go in an odd way backwards because I'm now fascinated with impersonating musicians all being in the room together. So I'm playing these samples and I'm playing all the instruments and everything. And I have this imaginary conversation in my head between the guitar player who's me and the drummer about the tempo. <laughs> I, I do yearn for having four musicians in a room at the same time. And so I've cooked up these personalities between these players and <laughs> I listen to the result and it's like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a garage band rehearsal. Right. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting because I, I, think, I think for writers, at, at, the, at least at the writing part of the state of the process, that's our experience, all our imaginary friends. Yeah. That hasn't changed for us because it was always like that for us. Right. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Just one little thing on the economic model. Ben, tell me about Patreon and its role in what you're doing at the moment. And I think possibly it's increasing role for artists. Yeah. It's hard to say how those platforms, how how difficult it is to become successful from, from nothing on them. I, I wouldn't know. My friend Jack created Patreon and he was a, a broke, you know, jazz pianist, basically. And he and his wife made some really great videos together. But this was a out of nowhere success for, for him. Years ago, when, it, it, when, when he made this, I guess, you know, four or five years ago, I said, I'll do something on it at some point. So I did. I set up an account a year ago and I just, you know, would make a thing like once a month or so, just a little broadcast. Then when everything shut down, I found that I needed Patreon for, you know, at least two months to, uh, to make rent. So we should explain how the financial model of Patreon works. So it's a, is it kind of like a subscription service? Is that the best way to exactly. explain it? Exactly. It's like Kickstarter subscription. It's like basically instead of an artist having to kind of kickstart every project, you sign up to subscribe to, to become a patron of that person of what they make. It's a very messy platform which is, I guess, the way art is. I mean, I, I hijack it to use it sort of as a broadcasting thing. Mm. Uh, some people like Amanda Palmer uses it famously to do everything that she does artistically. And she's doing that now from New Zealand, which she can do, you know, as well as she could have ever toured. It was really big for me for a couple months. It, it was something that happened to be set up and with suddenly, you know, not having uh, access to anything else and being in an apartment in Sydney, my access to the internet and Patreon was, uh, was my livelihood for a couple of months. Really what it has been for me, after a couple of months, I had a couple of emergency months, which is crazy for me because, you know, I've kind of taken it for granted. 30 years of a career, everything has been fine, but I've been based in touring. Part of my not doing what record labels might want me to do and not doing things for radio has been that I've been dependent on touring. For a little while it was that, but what it's become has been community. And that really is what much of, of live performance is about. I mean, when people first get into you know indie rock bands and they're going out to clubs all the time, some of it is just simply connecting with the other people who go to these and you're discovering new music and hearing it all at the same time and it becomes a community. And the reason that I continue to do Patreon now is simply because I look at the chatter and I see people connected from Perth to Iceland to everywhere, and they're now becoming friends. And I just kind of, I think I come in and play. I don't even know if they're listening. It's like I look up and they're just talking, which 
at a show, you can't really do that. That's rude. So it's it's amazing to me to look up and just see they're just having themselves a great time talking about what's on Netflix. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fair snapshot of how profoundly this all might change as a result. So, so maybe as a way of wrapping this up, Alan, I want your perspective on this because I remember reading that after the Spanish flu pandemic, that's when we get the monopoly of Hollywood in the film industry effectively because smaller operations simply can't survive in the aftermath of it. And so you get this big centralized behemoth. It sounds from what Ben's describing that this pandemic might do the opposite. It might break down some of the behemoths and mean what you actually get is a whole lot of little operations. Can we infer that? Well, maybe uh, you have big, deep-pocketed organizations with access to a lot of credit like AEG and Live Nation who are maybe going around and picking up all these small venues for pennies on the dollar because they're going out of business. So they're actually consolidating their position as as operators of venues. And of course, Live Nation also owns Ticketmaster, also owns a whole bunch of other things. So it's very possible that, that we will see these giant behemoths control more of the touring itineraries because they own all the venues. Alan, anecdotally, I'm on a huge, you know, my, my booking agent's a big entertainment uh, agency, does everything. They're not going to be doing touring anymore. I'm done with that. So I, I moved to a sports agency. What? Wow. Yeah. I'm, my, my, my booking agent will primarily be in sports. Uh, I don't know if many people know this, but so many of these booking agents, not the promoters, but the, uh, but the agents, yeah, at least for the time being, the big ones are, are struggling. Wow. So Ben, does that favor the analysis that says this is the rise of the small operations? I think it actually favors both. I think possibly what you get is what Alan is saying. Maybe you have one. I mean, there seems to be one one booking agency that I know of that everyone is flocking to. And then I, instead of going with them, I went with the sports agency. But then instead of going to a, a, a music manager years ago, I went to a political uh, um <laughs> So you have form of doing weird things like this, is what you say. <laughs> you know, like operative. I, I, I do things backwards. So you, you make perverse choices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Diverse is a really kind way of saying it. <laughs> oh, no, I, I didn't say diverse. I said perverse. <laughs> perverse. Oh, yeah. Perverse. Exactly. Thank you. That's a less, well, <laughs> less kind but more accurate way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> well stated. No, I think that's good. And I think at the same time, then you also have – so I, I'm, I moved. I had to sell my house back home. And I had to get someone to come in who knew about musical equipment to pack my musical equipment. Ended up being a musician. And I didn't know who he was. Someone just got this guy for me to, to, to help me out. I'm on the phone with him. And he's like, do you remember me? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I really don't. And he goes, yeah, uh, we were on tour together. I, I was playing with Sean Lennon and, and you were touring with Sean for a while. I was like, oh, exactly. Yeah, now I remember you from 20 years ago. And he's like, yeah, I'm doing odds and ends like this. He said, I was uh, playing, I was busking for the first time in my life. So uh, he went out and started busking. And then from that, he started getting all these porch concerts. So now he's doing a tour of New York State playing front porches. And he says he's going to make a great living next month. Wow. So I don't know. Those are, those are stories from, you know, tales from uh, beyond. We'll see how it all pans out when it comes together in the suit. I guess it's time now for the watching brief. Deborah, what are you watching? I think that humans have a great hunger for storytelling and it is my prediction that after a period of, of uncertainty and suffering and fear, people are going to need stories even more and can I just put in a bid there that some of those stories be Australian ones? 
<laughs> Excellent and very on brand for what you've uh, been talking about for quite a while. Uh, ben, what are you watching? Oh, you know, I'm always so disconnected, but but it does relate a little bit maybe to, to Deborah. I, I'm just watching old 1950s Japanese movies by Ozu, the great movie maker in Japan in the, in the, in the 50s. Uh, he also made silent movies, but they're stories and they're very slow. And if you told me, uh, you know, if, if someone said, hey, Ben, you need to start watching these movies. They're really, really slow. They take two hours to go anywhere a year ago, and I would have not listened. But now I'm, I'm willing to take the time. And, and I love the stories. They're human and, and uh, relatable. And um, that's what I'm watching. So but does that mean you're looking out for audience, the tempo of audiences' interests to change maybe? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it has for me. I'm more willing to watch two and a half hours of people sitting on the floor talking to each other about a wedding. Right. It's a story. It's, it's, I was thinking of something to watch, like, you know, these quick YouTube and in- Instagram and TikTok things. I, I can't think of anything that wouldn't make me sick. I, I like these old uh, Yasujiro Ozu movies. Alan, what are you looking out for? I have a lot of faith in young people who are taking up music for the very first time because they've got nothing better to do. Right now, guitar manufacturers like Fender and Gibson are selling all the guitars they can make because people, especially those under the age of 25, are taking up the guitar. These are also people who have never grown up without streaming. So their list of influences, their their accessibility to the entire recorded musical history of humanity is right there on their phones. Mm. So they're not only listening to whatever their friends are listening to, but they're also going back and listening to the Beatles and Pink Floyd and Tony Bennett and Billie Holiday and the Grateful Dead. Wow. And they have absolutely no bias or prejudice about any kind of music based on era or genre or anything like that. So they're sitting there alone, trying to figure out who they are musically, listening to all this music from many decades worth of of stuff. What kind of music are they going to end up making themselves? Right. I'm fascinated to find out. That is fascinating. And will we see the return of the guitar hero finally? Wouldn't that be something? I hope so. There's a story in Scientific American this week that says that climate change is really buggering things up because there's a certain type of ash that grows along the Mississippi River in America. And this ash, which is called swamp ash, is favored by Fender and and, uh, and Gibson in making guitars like Les Pauls and Stratocasters. (laughs) Because one of the reasons this, this swamp ash is such a big deal is because it spends a lot of time underwater as the Mississippi floods. And that gives the wood a very, very light density. Uh, However, with climate change, the flooding is lasting longer. The wood is spending more time underwater. It's harder to harvest. And when they get it out of the the swamp, it doesn't sound as good as when they make it into guitars. (laughs) You know what? That's it. I'm taking climate change seriously now. Like it's one thing to come for the planet, but when you come for my Strat and my Gibson, my Les Paul, then that's it. That's the last straw. And I haven't even mentioned about the ash boring beetle that's going after these trees too. Oh, God. It's just, it's just one thing after another. I don't think we can take the compounding effects of this tragedy, Alan, but you've put it on the agenda. So thanks very much for doing that. Yeah, glad I could put a smile on everybody's face. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I want to do something very unconventional to end. Normally, I would just say goodbye and see you next week. But Ben, I, I, we mentioned your waltz earlier about 2020. With your permission, it would be wonderful if we could play it to take out this podcast. Do you want to throw to it? Is there anything you want to tell us about it? Absolutely. This is a song that I wrote in the third week of June and released in the fourth. New 
Year's Eve. Don't it seem like decades ago? Back in 2019, back when life was slow. Now it's June. We're just halfway done. 2020, here we having fun. How many years will we try to cram into one? You thought we'd be living 1918 again, but we messed that up so bad. God had to toss 1930 in as the sun rose on. 68 this morning, a tweet from the John. Please let's not add the Civil War. How many years will we cram into one? Oh boy, how much more will she take? Boys, hope you enjoy your beautiful tax break. Parts that sucked. 2020, what the actual fuck? Pray we get through, but hey, don't hold your breath, 'cause there's plenty left to wreck. We got six months left. How many years? How many years will we try? How many years will we try to cram into one?